it is, is one of those things. So right before Jesus gets into this passage that we are going to discuss, he says, this is actually hard to grasp. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he gives an explanation of what, what that means here in our text. And then he embodies what that means as he uh, does a two, two couple miraculous healings. And so turn to your text. This is Matthew 9, starting in 14, and we'll go down to uh, 26. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, I want you to really think about this image. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, and if it is, the skins will burst, and the wine is spilled out, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Okay? Then it says, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler, and his name is Jairus, we know that from another gospel, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute player's and the crowd making a commotion. That's what happened at funerals back in the day. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all of that district. One of the things that we do here at Redeemer is uh, we pause uh, for, for many reasons, but part of the reason we're pausing is I want us all to become aware of God and each other, and specifically I want us to become aware of the eternal reality of the resurrection, that you participate with God when you worship Him, and what worship is, is turning towards the Lord and saying that this is not all that there is, I believe in another reality that has entered this reality that is eternal. And it's very, very easy to forget that. It's very easy to kind of get locked in our own circumstances and get distracted. Um, And so this is what we're doing together. As we sit in that moment of silence, we're saying, God, please show up uh, and help me show up to you. And so let's pray. Lord, as we enter into this time and and space with one another, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to attune our minds and our hearts 
so that we may understand, that we may um, uh, not be conformed to this age, but be transformed with the renewal of our minds, to know, to discern your will, to know and discern that this is, this is holy what we're doing, that you have made us eternal creatures and we will not rest in our deep soul until you give us that eternal rest in your son Jesus. And so we need your power we need your spirit to come and to be poured out onto us right now. So would you do that right, right now in Christ's name? Amen. So uh, we are returning back to the gospel of Matthew this week, and we'll be in the gospel of Matthew till, till Easter. Um, and what we've been doing in this series is we've been following this theme called the kingdom of God. Now remember, a, a gospel in the first century was an announcement of a change in power. That's what people thought of when they heard the word gospel in the first century. And what Matthew has been saying from the beginning of his gospel is that Jesus is a king and he's brought his eternal kingdom into the realm of humankind. He's implanted it in the world, specifically in Jesus, but then his people. And Jesus is showing us how that transforms our minds, how it renews our minds and He's giving us live examples of that in in this text. And we're going to look at how Christianity expands our thinking and expands our view of time. Those two points, expands our thinking, point one. And this is found in Matthew 9, 14 through 17. So uh, there there are two primary approaches to God. One that says, I'm open, Lord, to you transforming me. And another approach that says, I want to fit you into how I think, God. I want to transform, and I want you to adapt to how I already think. And the gospel actually has the power to constantly transform us as individuals and as a community, but that requires a specific posture of a human being, and it's the posture of submission and repentance. And that's also a gift given to us by God, that he has to give us that posture of heart that says, I want to be open to adapting to you as my Lord, as my creator. And what I want us to see from this section today is that Jesus is inviting you, like he's inviting John's disciples, to adjust how they normally think so that your mind and your heart can expand to hold him like a new wineskin. The problem with adaptation and change is that before we change, it's quite odd sometimes and scary. So uh, before before COVID, you know, a barcode on a table was was not even a thing, right? Um, In the heat of COVID, uh, restaurants had to adapt to basically all online orders or takeout. And now when you go into a restaurant, that's just like a given thing. They actually have parking spaces, you know, for those who have carryout orders. Um, and it's, it's just norm. It's become the norm and not strange that we sit down at a table and there's like a barcode. You know, you even see it here in our church. Um, you, could, you could say the same thing about the game of basketball. Um, you talk to any NBA player, they will say that the game has shifted in the past 30 years away from it being a non-big-man-centric game 
And part of that is big guys started dribbling the basketball like point guards. But another part of that was Steph Curry shooting from half court, you know, and everyone was like, that's weird. And then he started making it. And what happened is that offenses and defenses had to spread. It's still the game of basketball, but how you play is totally different because of this new reality, this insertion of this new thing. And then everything has to adapt to it. Now, I want you to look back at your text. Verse 14. The disciples of John, highly religious guys here, came to Jesus and they say, hey, why aren't your disciples fasting like we fast? And here's what they're asking. Here's what they're asking. Why aren't y'all doing things the way that things are done? Okay? And I want you to listen to Jesus' response. And please think, this is, this, is a, uh, this is quite a philosophical thought, okay, over the next few verses. Jesus says, can a wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they'll fast. And what he's saying is that the purpose of all religious activity is me. That's what Jesus is saying. The reason you fast is to get God. That's the ultimate purpose. That's the correct purpose. That he's the reason for all spiritual disciplines. And then he says this. If you knew how to discern the time and what is standing right in front of you, you'd be throwing a party. You wouldn't be fasting. Now, um, there is a way, if you grew up in church, you probably learned that, that verse in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the image of this world, you know, uh, that the, the word that's translated world there is actually um, age, it's eon in, in the Greek, and there is, a, there is a way to be conformed to the age that you're in that actually looks highly religious, that's what Jesus is teaching these disciples of John. These Pharisees and the disciples of John were trying to fit Jesus into their way of thinking instead of allowing him to transform their minds. They had a, so, and we all do this to a certain extent, we have a preset idea of what we think God should be like, and we try to fit him into that mold. It's actually a breach of the second commandment. It's, it's crafting him in an image that we want him to be and not letting him uh, craft us into his image. And so, in order to help them, Jesus uses two images, verse 16 and 17, look at it, to help them understand the deeper reality of the kingdom that he's inviting them into. And he says, look, you can't put a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or it will tear and neither can you put new wine into old wineskins. And if you do, the new wine will expand and burst the old wineskins because the old wineskins can't contain all of the goodness of the new wine. The new wine's active and living, and it'll burst it open. But then he says, if you have new wineskins, that can contain the new wine, and both will be preserved. Interesting images. And I love this so much. And he's talking, he's talking a lot about Judaism and Christianity here. And, and he, he's claiming to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament right there. But on the ground level, in the actual text, here's what he's doing. He's showing the disciples of John, these highly religious people, 
who had devoted themselves to the Word of God, he's showing them how to become Christians. And this is the very heart of gospel transformation. Now, we, uh, this church belongs to a denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America. And we come from a theological heritage that coined this great phrase in the 15th and 1600s. And it's called uh, Reformed and Always Reforming. Reformed back to what the Scripture says. And the reason why it's always reforming is because each age of human beings perverts the gospel. We skew it a little bit. And the Word of God is eternal and timeless and beyond relevant. It is us who is out of date. And the Reformers, knowing that, said, if you continue to stick to what's actually in Scripture, it will knock the rough edge off of every single generation until Jesus returns. The gospel is the only thing expansive and malleable enough to actually hold the constant change that you even endure throughout your life. The gospel can hold you as a little child and hold you on your deathbed because it's expansive enough. And here's the gospel, that there is a God-man who brought the eternal world into the temporal world for a specific purpose, to reconcile everything in himself. Everything. It's pretty expansive. Now, if that's true, um, there's nothing more life-altering in any age. There's nothing more life-altering at each point of your life. It's a way to think and be in this life that says, if that's true, it's the, it, what it does, it changes us in, into beings who, who say, I am, I am actually here. I am here to give instead of get because of the God-man. I am here to give myself to him so that I can be reconciled to him along with the world. I am here to release my sense of control over my life, and my purpose is to turn to God and discern what His will might be for me. That's not easy. You know, it takes discernment. And if that isn't your goal, your approach to everything which would include your relationship to people, but also, also your relationship to, to stuff, to material things, is self-focused. You'll have to try to conform everything to yourself. You'll try to reconcile everything in the way that you want it to be. And that'll be your approach. So, for, for instance, let's, uh, I want to get lost in the stratosphere here, okay? Um, let's say you struggle with your relationship to money. Right? Stop and think about that just for a moment. You know you think about it too much. You know you're always wanting more, or you always think that you don't have enough. What you're, what you're doing is that you have 
placed money in a position that functions as your creator, you, and you, at that point, have to serve it. Because you're thinking at the heart level, it's, it's going to keep you safe. Money's going to keep you safe. It's going to guard you. It's going to guard your family. It's going to bring you the comforts and the necessary things that you need to be at peace. And when that happens, it's not so much that money's bad, but it's what you have allowed your heart to do with money. You, you've allowed your heart to be conformed to the world, conformed to the age. And you're not allowing God to transform your mind and how you relate to creation. And once you do that, uh, you're trapped. I saw a robbery this week um, at Super Saver. And uh, this guy was running out with a backpack, and uh, he, he was running towards, like, this very busy intersection. It was, like, one of, the, one of the worst robberies I've ever seen because, like, everyone saw it. I was like, dude, you got to get better. Um, <laughs> and, uh, like, the, the, super, the super saver employee was, like, like, running after him on the phone, like, I presume talking to the police. And, like, everybody had their phones out just recording it, you know. Like, this is the modern world, and he, uh, he, gets on, he gets on the bus, like a city bus, and like people are exiting the bus, and the bus driver just like is sitting there. He's like, dude, I'm not going to go. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was like, that's, you know, the moment, the moment you approach your life thinking, I just got to get, get, get. I got to do, do, do. I got to take, take what doesn't belong to me you immediately go against the current of, of your life, of who you are and who God is and who the, who the world wants God and you to be. And if God is your creator and you are a creature and you never stop and say, all that I am, all that I do, like, belongs to you, and I can't earn that. I can't do anything to, to make your love go away, then Essentially, what you're doing is you're living your life in, in robbery to God. And the whole world, this is why, you know, many of us feel like our, we call it anxiety, but I think this image is better. It's like, it feels like our life is like tearing at the seams or it's exploding in a way, just like these wineskins. And it's because we don't have new wineskins to hold the expansiveness of Jesus. And so necessarily, it's going to feel like when, when you come into contact with Jesus, he's going to burst you open. And what he's saying is like, don't focus on getting more, doing more, sacrificing more. Focus on me. I am in your midst. I have always been in your midst. He is the only timeless one. And he is going to make you restless. Until, because you're made for eternity, until you hold him in your heart. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I certainly struggle with this. Like, I feel like the world has changed so much that I can't keep up. Um, sometimes I feel like it's impossible to know how we are messing up the next generation. And we don't have time to, to pause and think and ponder because it feels like we have to kind of keep moving or things are going to fall apart and to try and carve out space to just stop and contemplate and, and rest, it's virtually impossible without God. And this is the role of the church, 
to present Jesus Christ to ourselves and to the world, who is the unfading crown of glory, who has inserted eternity into this temporal world that is constantly adapting, constantly changing, constantly losing life. And what we are to do with one another is to say, look at him. That's what he's doing with the, these disciples of John. He's saying, look at, look at what's right in front of you. I am the bridegroom. Stop fasting. Feast. Um, Sarah and I just watched a movie called After Yang. Anybody see After Yang in here? Can I get an amen? No amens? No? Um, it's a beautiful movie. And it's about uh, the, the memories and experience of an artificial intelligent person named Yang. And the story is told and seen from his perspective. And the human dad, uh, Colin Farrell, in this movie, what happens is that he goes back and watches his own life from the AI's perspective. And what he begins to realize is just how beautiful his life actually, just how beautiful his family is. And this is not said in the movie, but I will say it because I think this is what it's about, just how holy his life is. The problem was he wasn't able to see it in real time. And the reason why is because he was too distracted on what he was doing and what, did he, what he needed to get done for the family in the present moment. Now, what Jesus is helping these disciples to see is that if, if you actually do shift the focus of your life away from you and you look for Jesus' work and his kingdom, things begin to expand. And there is no fear. There is holiness. Because you see him, for whom your heart has been looking all along. It's then, y'all, that the, the idea and the reality of repentance, you know what repentance is? Turning, stopping doing something and turning to God, um, actually becomes exciting and not like a drag. It's not like eating sand, you know? It's like, no, I get, I get to adapt. Um, I get to try this half-court shot. Oh my gosh, it just went. Did anybody see the Warriors play this past week? He steals a ball. I, I like LeBron. He steals a ball, and like, like 10 feet past half court, he just like shoots it up and like immediately goes in. He's like, like dude, I want to I live like you, Steph Curry. Um, second point, sorry, that was a tangent. Uh, he transforms our, our minds. He also transforms our view of time. And this is found in verses 18 through 26. But also, the other Gospels have more details about this story. Um, And you can find that in Mark 5, starting in verse 22. And part of, so Jesus, he's expanding our view of how we think about time. And what he's showing us is that he's going to heal this woman. And then when he heals this little girl, he's, he is showing that like he's bringing resurrection reality into our time and space and that he's not bound by it. That what seems pressing and dominant to us is not what drives him, 
and I, and I really love, Mark really brings that out. So I just want to talk to you about the scenario really fast, and we'll talk about how it applies to us. In the text, there's a woman who is suffering from basically a 12-year-long menstrual cycle. That life is constantly, the blood is constantly leaving her body. She, she went to many doctors, spent all her money, and couldn't get healed. And she lived with this debilitating disease for longer than a decade, which in verse, and you see that in verse 20 of Matthew, which means that she would have survived another day with this disease. This little 12-year-old girl, however, was like, Mark says she's on death's door. Matthew says she's already dead. It was a pressing matter. And so Jairus comes to Jesus. Jairus is a very important man. He comes to Jesus and says, will you please heal my daughter? And so he's making his way to go heal his daughter, which is a very pressing need, through a crowd. And then this woman touches him, and Jesus stops in the midst of this like very intense, like highly, highly charged moment. And he says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, uh, you're in the midst of a crowd, man. A lot of people are touching you. He's like, no, no, no. Mark, and Mark it says, um, power has gone out from me. Now, rest here for a second, okay? Power leaves Jesus when she touches him. And there's all sorts of ceremonial Old Testament stuff going on there, but here's the gist. Jesus is so full of life, and we aren't, that life is constantly leaving us. And this story is about how through Jesus, he reverses the death that constantly leaves our body through his touch, through his touch. You know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche says that haste is universal because everyone is in flight from themselves because we can't escape mortality. And I want you to imagine Jesus entering a time and space infested with that sort of toxicity, the toxicity that's in us, that's in the world constantly. And we are tormented by that type of fear or we give ourselves over to death. And Jesus doesn't have any of that unhealth in himself. He doesn't have any of that haste in himself. And the only thing that he has in his body is life and health and resurrection. And here's what I want you to see. What happens when life enters death? What happens when life enters death? The true king is not bound by what we are bound by. That he comes with power and he comes to give that power away. And he gives it away to very unimportant people, according to the world. Jairus' daughter was important. This woman was just one of the crowd. And he takes time in the midst of that urgent situation to slow down and heal her and teach his disciples an important lesson that he's not bound by anything in this world. Nothing. That he rules over it all. That he will, and this is... This is a hard one for me, y'all. Um, he lets Jairus' daughter die to teach them that he has come to change their hearts as well as their circumstances. 
And I want us to think about this in terms of our current age right now. There's an article that Austin Mackerel sent, sent us, sent me and a few others uh, today or this past week. It was talking about anxiety. And the point of the article was that the more you feel like you have to change the world around you, the more anxious you'll feel and the more tethered to the world you will feel. But Christianity and Jesus says, I have come to change you first in the midst of your circumstances. And part of how he does that is that he has come to redeem time. The redemption of time. Now, um, I, have, I have thought about this quite a bit, this idea of the redemption of time with my friend Jordan here in this church three years ago. Uh, many of you know this if you've been around, but if you're new to this church, there is a, a guy named Jordan in our church that took his own life about three years ago. And I've often thought about if, if, I, if I could have gotten there sooner, or if somebody in this church, if we as a community could have known, could have turned back the clock just a little bit, like this tragic thing would not have happened. And as I, as I meditate on, you know, Jesus lets this little girl die. What if God has something far greater in mind that what wasn't about what you and I could have prevented. It almost seems negligent, right? That he lets this little girl die. But what he was doing through this terrible tragedy is that he's training us to think about the eternal reality of the resurrection. Our confession states that God works through secondary causes. <laughs> and uh, what I take that to mean is that God is very much in control, even when it doesn't seem like he is. And on top of that, um, he can use evil decisions and evil things for his good purposes. Now back to the text. Look at verses 23 and 24. I'm going to read this to you. So he gets on the scene. And he, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Why do you think they laughed? That's right. Right? They didn't believe. All right. It's like uh, it's like Sarah in the Old Testament. You know, Abram. She's old. She doesn't have the way of womanhood in terms of birth giving, and uh, God says you're going to have a, a son, and she laughs. And then God says, you know, she denies that she laughs, and like, no, you did laugh. And then shows she named him Isaac, the son of laughter. Um, if you don't ever laugh at the gospel, you're probably not paying attention to it. <laughs> Most of us have grown cold to the gospel. Because the gospel is that Jesus Christ has the power to touch my friend Jordan. 
and raise him. Or any who's died in this church. And he wants to transform our minds to believe that. God transforms us through our circumstances, no matter how terrible they are. And if you take this principle, I just want you to see how practical this is. If you take this principle that God transforms me first and I entrust him with my circumstances, it'll revolutionize your life. It'll totally revolutionize you. It will. This is what Jesus is teaching everyone around him as he heals this little girl by taking her hand and he says, it's time to get up. And the original and other gospels is like, honey, it's time to get up. Talitha kumi. And when you see Jesus and his power in this way, what begins to happen is that you begin to release people. This is the beautiful part. You begin to release people of who you think they should be and what you want out of them, both the living and the dead. It's the gospel principle of release because his timing is always perfect. Always. So let's say uh, let, this is how it plays itself out, you know, for those of us who are living. Um, let's say you are married and there's something about your spouse that you really wish would change. You ever focused really hard on that? <laughs> You know, someone else changing in the way that you want them to change? How's that working for you? <laughs> the reason, look, y'all, the reason why that pushes people away is because you're not driven by the gospel principle that says, I, I actually accept you for exactly who you are. I adapt to you. I conform my mind and my body to love you. You don't adapt to me. You don't conform to me. Right now, if in your brain is like, yeah, and they, they should do that, you're already, you're already off track. You and me, we conform, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That is spiritual worship. It's not just singing. It's marriage. It's every relationship. And God says, if you approach life like that, if you let things be what they are, doesn't mean that you don't want things to change. It doesn't mean that you don't escape abusive relationships. I'm not talking about that. You release people from the image that you want them to be and you love. You know what, you know what happens? You have immediate rest. Immediate rest. Because this is how God is with you. And you're imaging him. You're giving people the gospel. And it's so counterintuitive that you must have a whole new approach and a whole new view of yourself and the world. It's like a wineskin so that you can maintain and hold the goodness of Jesus in your body. And the moment you stop trying to change the world and the environment around you and you receive things as they are, things click into place. Now, um, we're going we're gonna to close here, but I, I want to say something very quickly because I, I know myself and I know some of you and you have a rebuttal to this way of life. That if you actually did trust God and you rested and you weren't so urgent, you think, like I think, well, then nothing ever is ever going to get done. If you don't put pressure on people, you know, things ain't going to happen. We got to get the ball rolling, right? 
And here, here's what I want to tell you. Here's part of why I think God's called me here to Nebraska, for you and for myself. What would be so bad about getting less done? You know? What, what would be so bad um, if we didn't get, like, the best thing that we could get? What would be so bad about making less money? What if in that space you found eternal life when you did less? I, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you an example. You're going to be tempted to feel guilty. Don't. I know a pastor who said that an elder in his church completely wiped out the debt of a single mom in his congregation. And he said his, uh, the children of this elder were like low-grade angry because they didn't get to go somewhere exotic that year. And this isn't uh, like, don't ever go on exotic vacations. It's not what I'm saying. Here's my question. Who do you think has more peace in their hearts, the elder or his children? Who's more free? Who's more happy? The irony is that the person who has rest actually never feels like they're running behind. Or that they need more or that they need more time. And in the end, even though this isn't the point, that person is more productive in the right ways because they believe that they're beloved by God. That's what you're looking for in all your haste. It's what I'm looking for. This is why we scroll for seven to nine hours a day if the stats are right. We're looking for somebody. Somebody else said this, I'm sure. We're looking for somebody looking for us, right? And what the, the gospel says is if you turn that desire towards the Lord in prayer and in Scripture and in each other, what you'll find is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the ultimate end of a human being is to know and be known by God. That is what we are looking for, whether we know it or not. In all our fasting or in all of our indulgence, whichever type you are. And I want you to imagine, as we close, being this little girl and Jesus grabbing your hand and saying, time to wake up. And let's go get something to eat. It is strange. Every time that resurrection happens, Jesus like, get that person something to eat, you know. Let's cause hunger. Um, he says, you're not dead. You were just sleeping, and now let's go. God expands our minds and our view of time, and he invites us to wake up to the new reality of his kingdom. Let's pray, and then we'll enter in a time of confession and assurance. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the expansion of our minds and our hearts that you give us by the Spirit. And so would you bless your people today um, as we confess our sins and we are assured of forgiveness, that we would see that being, being flexible uh, to you, being uh, able to adapt to the reality of you in this world is the most alive that we can be. And so come now, Lord, speak in Christ's name. Amen.